Welcome back. Paul and I have had a cup of tea. We're relaxed. We've had our water. We've rehydrated. And we're back for the four phases of Big Bang Disruption. Paul's a brilliant book. Highly, highly recommend this book. Welcome back, Paul Nunes. Thanks, Aiden. It's great to be back. Great to be with you again, man. And I thought what we'd do today is I'm sharing on the screen the four phases of Big Bang Disruption, the shark fin. And the shark fin, just as a reminder for those who may have forgotten or missed it, is a consolidation or a compression of Ever Rogers' old bell curve of adoption of new innovations. And the way we're going to run it today is we're going to introduce each of these four phases and then give an example. And then there's three rules, as you'll see on the screen here, that fall in under each phase. So let's start with the singularity. And Paul, maybe explain what the singularity is and then give us the great case study that you do in the book of Neo Lucida. The singularity, we borrow the term from Big Bang, which is that, you know, it doesn't happen slowly. Um, The Big Bang, obviously, is nothingness until it happens. And then you have the bang. And in innovation terms, we called it Fail, 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 fail. Succeed wildly. <laughs> you know, wild success. And that's very different than uh, uh, Jeffrey Morris, for example, you know, his preceding book, which is a great book, but it talked about jumping, uh, it talked about crossing the chasm, where it was this idea that you'd be mildly successful and that you had to build success upon success upon success and that you would oftentimes reinvest the profits of minor success to turn it into major success. That's not at all what we saw happening in Big Bang Disruption. It was this idea of constant failure until there was tremendous success. Now, the key is, so how do I have to change my innovation processes? And what's different about the way I, I do certain things in that kind of an innovation development environment? So one of the first things is this idea we talked about looking for truth tellers. And truth tellers are an interesting thing in uh, soap operas. It's a weird term. Um, but in soap operas, they use the term. It's, it's the origin of it because it means it's the, the person in the cast that always kind of moves the story forward. <laughs> it's like, oh, there's yeah, the reason she could be at both places is she has an evil twin, right? Is it? But there's always somebody who, who reveals uh, something about the plot to keep things, you know, moving along. Or, you know, sitcoms, it's the person who comes in and says, well, maybe you should just, you know, split the baby this way and then uh, move on. I would wager you were one of those inside Accenture. You don't have to answer that. <laughs> but I'd also, it is, it is the very DNA of our audience, these truth tellers. Exactly. To be a truth, because it's a function of seeing what the others aren't seeing and trying to communicate that to the marketplace. And where it can be very difficult, and particularly in my own experience and personal experiences, when you're trying to communicate something that's enormously important, but not really here just yet. And that's the kind of things you want to do. And I always, uh, you know, I used to be a futurist at one point for Accenture. We had a saying that came from someplace else, but you can tell them what's going to happen or when it's going to happen, but never both. I want to get this in, and and I'm doing this more for, uh, you know, there's a guy called David Rock. He's a neuro a neuroscientist, and and he has this model of lever- leadership 
that he calls the SCARF model, security, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. So you have these traits. And for me, I, I, I'm high on uh, autonomy, and I'm high on fairness. And I think fairness is so important. And I have to say out of fairness, there's so much that you wrote about in this book first at a time where it wasn't written about. And I mentioned this before, but an example was Fujifilm. And, and, and I, please do. I know you're very humble, but there was so many of these instances within the book. Well, well yeah, and we'll get to that with, for the, the, the truth of it or not. Uh, but I'm flattered that you say that. But yeah, a lot of these, and I, and I hope that some of these examples also don't feel kind of old to our audience, um, because a lot of things, you know, the book was in 2014, and uh, some of these have become pretty self-evident. But I think there is still an awful lot as you go back to it, because you don't really understand the hard times of, of past successes. I'll give you one example of a truth teller was George Lucas, right? And George Lucas actually had Star Wars years and years ahead of time, but he refused to make it as a movie until he could do it technologically the way he wanted to. And, and that's a great example of a truth teller. And, and, and throughout his career, and it's interesting, I, I mean, George Lucas is the one who pointed out that digital technologies were going to reinvent movies. And now, you say, well, obviously. Well, no, it wasn't obvious to the industry before. And you think of what we're talking about now with artificial intelligence and, you know, chat, GPT, and generative artificial intelligence, you know, creating new things. It's like, well, you know, wait a minute. It's not just going to be creating complex backdrops of a Ben-Hur style or, you know, that we're going to, you know, or creating, you know, avatar-type planets and that. It's like, no, they, you know, computer might start actually writing the story as well as filling in the background. And, but, you know, who was ahead of saying that and, 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 and did they embed that? And you, now, an example, so we have to listen to those folks. So that's the, the truth teller thing. And there's um, lots of folks, you know, in your organization probably and this is the interesting thing is that most organizations have a few people kind of, as you point to, I like to think it was me a little bit, but every organization has those and finding those people and keeping them around and not shutting them down is, is incredibly more important now than probably ever. But you mentioned a great example, which was the, um, the Neo Lucida. And what that was, was, an interesting uh, technological advancement of its time. In the early, hundreds of years ago, back in the 1400s and that, they recognized, artists recognized that if you looked through a prism at just the right angle, you could project the image you were looking at down onto a piece of paper or onto a wall and essentially see the, in, the image that you were looking at. And you could do the old, cut and paste, the first version of you do tracing. It was like tracing paper. All you had to do was, you know, draw and paint the colors you saw on the wall or the paper. It was called the, the Lucida. Uh, and so what happened is, and this is an example of how innovation kind of works in today's model, a, the Neo-Lucida sold hundreds of, of versions of a new version of all it was, was a prism and parts. But what happened is it was too art teachers decided that they want to introduce their students to this old 
method uh, of creating better art and to help them realize that technology has always helped artists, which is really interesting, right? What they did was they simply sourced the materials online. They found the funding from Kickstarter. So they went in, uh, hopefully most listeners are familiar with Kickstarter, but really important, this idea that, you know, I can put the idea out there and let other people, because this idea actually, and we'll come back to it, that's really important is shared risk, the, the new nature of where risk resides in business. And that's enormously important to the idea of big bang disruption is who's going to bear the wit, the risk, where and how. And Kickstarter is a great example of where people who want the end product can get involved in bearing the risk of whether or not it can actually be made and whether or not that will fail. But they got they wanted maybe $1,500 to build a few of these so that they could sell to teachers around the country. In a few weeks, they had $400,000 in investment funds. Um, and the great thing about them is that they didn't want to own any of the IP. So what they did is they made all of the intellectual property about like how the parts, where the parts were sourced from, how to make the thing, the blueprints, all became public property. And then they sold to the original Kickstarter audience and they sold the ones that they wanted and then they moved out. Now, was this a tremendous success in the standpoint of Nintendo or Apple having hundreds of thousands, millions of you know products, tens of millions of products sold? No, but it does highlight how you can have a very successful product launch for the company customers that do want it in a very particular way. And this power of um, the singularity being about what we would call recombinant, you know, we talk about recombinant DNA is the idea of putting pieces together all over and seeing what you get. But this recombinant innovation, which is we're just going to bring together pieces. So I'm going to bring a prism from here. I'm going to bring, you know, a piece of metal and some stands, maybe a tripod Lots of places you can buy tripods, whether it's for holding an iPhone. I mean, all these things, right? Uh, and very quickly and simply come up with new products. So we've never had the possibility for um, innovation at the margins the way we have today and, and the way that that might actually lead to innovation at the center eventually. So you listen to the truth tellers. Pinpoint market entry, I think, is another important thing that we talk about in the book. Um, of a way companies have to think about handling the, the singularity. Because, again, it goes back to the Kindle example of, you know, when do you enter the market? When is the exact right time? And this idea that it has to be pinpoint is something we talk about a bit in the book and is something I think we really have to think about here. Because, as I said, Bezos was seven years thinking about what are the actual requirements um, that you're going to need. Um you know, and then he sold out his first batch in five and a half hours. <laughs> so you go from seven years of thinking about it to one, um, you know, one product and then basically emptying the, the warehouse in five and a half hours. Now, what's interesting, we'll talk about a bit more later, too, is how many Kindles, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but how many Kindles did Apple actually, did uh, Amazon actually make? And the answer is it didn't make any of them because it was outsourced to, to Foxconn, who also makes the iPhone for Apple. So we get this and we'll come back to it, this idea of, um, you know, having these third-party suppliers as your 
um, your secret uh, sauce, your, your hip pocket solution to, to actually doing this. But I mentioned a moment ago about this idea of rethinking the nature of risk, and then it becomes an interesting question of as you bring in these partners to build your offering, there's all kinds of new levels of risk. There's holdup risks. There's risks of contractual risk, right? And there's also the idea, however, of maybe I can share the risk with the supplier. Maybe I can get Foxconn to make a few million of these or at least a few thousand of these, whatever. And so the idea of Foxconn as an innovation player or any of these suppliers, critical suppliers getting into the supply chain and, and becoming a an actual risk-based player in it. Because, of course, there's a certain amount of risk in having to fashion the production lines and everything else. But, again, it becomes a question of who's going to pay for that. You know, does Apple pay for the redesign of the, uh, of the manufacturing plant, or does Foxconn take that? And we'll talk more about that in time. But really this idea of, of the pinpoint market accuracy and then – you know, iPod with 350 million units. And uh, Tumblr, for example, is another great example of timing it right and, and catastrophic success. And then the last one we talk about in the book a little bit is this idea of launching seemingly random experiments. And that kind of goes to the Neo Lucida, but also things like Oculus, right? And Oculus VR um, bought for billions of dollars. I can't even remember the price <laughs> um, by Microsoft, right? But uh, the nature of, you know, just wanting to play around with just, again, some, you know, people wanting to play around with this idea of virtual reality and, and what it could potentially um, become. So we have to think differently. You know, the short of it is this empty, this, this seemingly empty space of innovation where we don't have you know, obvious winners being formed um, becomes a, a, a barren landscape where we really have to figure out how to survive in it. So on the screen now, you'll see next on the new curve, the shark fin is the Big Bang. And again, three rules fall under the Big Bang. Survive catastrophic success, something we alluded to in the last episode. Capture winner-take-all markets. Paul will allude, Paul will unpack what this means. And then create bullet time. One of my favorite, favorite terms, Paul, of all yours is this idea of creating bullet time. Over to you. So where does winner take all play out in terms of the Big Bang? And, you know, we'll think of things like Tesla and subsidies is, is a good example of, you know, sure, we know eventually it's going to be um, electric cars, but um, maybe it's worth being first, even if it takes subsidies, um, so that you can capture the entire market. But the problem is if it never uh, shows up. But again and again, what we see is number one and number two, and not really a number three. So GoPro is, in the, is kind of a good example that we've used before. But when you think about it, you know, what are the two big competitors to GoPro? <laughs> Hard to imagine, right? Uh, they're, they're, but this idea of you become the dominant one. And I was thinking just um, about using an example of uh, how the new thermos market is so competitive and realizing 
you know, Paul, you can't say thermos because thermos is actually a brand name. It's, uh, you know, for a, I don't even know what you call a thermos that isn't the thermos. Um, but, you know, we have uh, all the different brands of Yeti and uh, all these other ones. But, you know, who actually pioneered that? Um, but this idea that um, when you do have this new new product, there isn't going to be a second and third. Uh, and it's important when you think about whether you want to enter a market if you're going to be late. And so I'm trying to think of a good example of it. But um, there's actually an importance of sort of self-selection that if you know you're going to be late to the market, you know, it's better never than late it is like a joke. So uh, among uh, comedians, or things, they say that, you know, uh, a, a joke is better never than late. Um, and, and in some ways the second best product is better never than late. But the last uh, point that we talk about in catastrophic success that you said you liked, Aiden, is, uh, and I like it too, is something we call bullet time. And that comes from the Matrix movies. I think a, a number of our listeners are going to have heard of it. Um, but it was this idea that, you know, in the movie, and it's actually uh, trademarked, um, the idea, the ability to slow time when the bullet gets shot and, and you see, you know, well, moving and turning and you get the 3D so you can see all the different parts of, of the bullet. Man. So they call that bullet time and everything gets slowed. And so you can see everything and then it speeds up again and, and you see what eventually happened. But it's like, you know, how did that bullet just miss his, his head? And so we talk about it in the book in the sense of, when you're in the middle of a of catastrophic success or another company is in the middle of catastrophic success um, or even better before it happens or as it's starting to happen, what can you do to create bullet time? So how can you, and in this case, things like, you know, the law and regulation is one of the ways don't necessarily recommend it. Although sometimes, um, it can be appropriate, right? For safety reasons and that to say, Hey, wait a minute. You know, maybe using non-licensed drivers or whatever, you know, know, is not a great thing. Maybe, you know, allowing people to rent rooms or buildings in neighborhoods that aren't zoned for commercial uses isn't a great idea. Um, And we should think about it and think about it maybe until I have time to compete properly. (laughs) <laughs> um, but you know that's the other thing. But you know, and so I would say, and it's really important that it's you know not all moves by incumbents to slow down the process of adoption are bad things. There's often very good reasons to want to slow down adoption um, and to see it happen. But that's part of the toolbox, part of the toolkit for incumbents um, to slow it down, and part of what um, innovators have to think about and, and be prepared for um, in the sense of what are incumbents going to do to to slow time it's that's such an important one paul i thought was that it's it's not an end in itself bullet time bullet time is to buy your time and uh this is uh this has inspired me i was telling you i, I write a weekly article and i i wanted to write one about this because i remember when my son was born my first son that i was learning how to change a nappy <laughs> and i remember my wife was telling me 
when you're when you're changing nappy have the new nappy underneath his old nappy and everything ready have your wipes everything ready etc and i realized the need for bullet time to buy myself time because i actually got destroyed by <laughs> in the early days with a wry smile and everything and i was like i go when i read about bullet time i was like that's like me with the first nappy change i ever did i wish i had some type of way of slowing time to be able to react and grab the other nappy in time i didn't by the way that's a, a spoiler alert but um I, it, it's such an important point and, and to your point it's a tool to buy time, not to actually, it's not, it's not the end game itself. Yeah. It's not a forever solution and it's not an end game generally. Um, because you know, things get worked around it, but I always think, you know, early in my, my young life, I was taught to play chess and play chess, um, somewhat competitively, but I always thought chess was a great thing to teach children and, and to experience because it forces you to think multiple moves ahead. If I do this, you know, you can't be a chess player without thinking multiple moves, and the best are five, ten moves ahead. But, you know, it's fundamentally based on if I do this, what will the other person do? And then what will I do? And then what will they do? And then what will I do? And the ability to do that to multiple depths is is really the challenge in a functioning brain. But I always find it interesting for companies or in any kind of strategic environment. Um, and I find a lot of the, a lot of times you don't see people using chess logic, which is all right. If you in particular like in arguments, and you probably know this, right? It's like if I say think about that, right? If I say this, what is the other person likely to say, think, and say? And then what am I going to say? And then what are they going to say? And then where are we going to be at? <laughs> and so I'm not going to say that because I can see three statements down the line, right? But it's the same in um, this idea of, um, you know, uh, introducing new products. Like, okay, if I introduce a product, and it kind of goes back to the People Express example we had used much earlier. So, again, it comes back to this idea. It's like, Okay, if you go into the highest profitability East Coast corridor of the United States with your low-cost solution, what are these other people, what are these other companies going to do? Are they going to say, all right, People Express, you won, you beat us, you got a nice low-cost product? Or are they basically going to find a way within the law to match your prices for as long as you can survive you know, in a cash run until you're bankrupt and until you're out of cash. And, and so that was one of the things that even the, the CEO at the time admitted to us, uh, admitted to me when we were talking uh, a long time ago. Um, but it was that, yeah, you know, we should have seen that coming better. <laughs> and that's, you know, it's part of that game of like, uh, you know, what can they do within the law to, to hold you up? It's such an important rule as well. And and again, I love the way you tied it back to People Express as well. Great, great example. The next phase we'll jump on to is the big crunch. And you say here, the success in the big crunch requires very different skills and expertise than the previous stages. You'll need to pivot quickly, moving from rapid growth to timely exit, jettisoning anything that doesn't help you transition to the next cycle of innovation. The three rules for this, the razor sharp, edge of the shark fin are all about moving faster than the crunch 
to avoid committing capital and resources just before the bust, including to short including to short-lived inventory to avoid stranding assets and infrastructure investments, and finally, to avoid stranding profits. Exactly. Um, and I think that's, you know, huge, this idea of stranded assets, right? Um, whether it's inventory or whether it's the, the actual manufacturing plants. Um, I always, it, it was a concept we got from the earliest days of jumping the S-curve, this idea of, you know, when is the start and end of the period of evaluation of making money? And this has always sort of fascinated me because we talk about, you know, what is a profitable company? Well, there's no such thing as a profitable company in a moment. I mean, there kind of is, but it's not really important. What's really sort of important is the nature of value across a time period. And, and did you create, you know, so what's the total value created? Because, you know, the first thing many companies do is they spend all the profits trying to get to the next S curve. And if you spend all the profits, uh, you know, and more by borrowing more than you ever earned, and destroy that value, well, then the total value of the enterprise, you know, maybe zero by the time you're done. So, you know, you had this nice run up, we made a lot of profits, and we made, and then we, we burned a lot of money, you know, lost billions of dollars that turned into nothing. Um, you know, so capturing value is, is as important as creating value. And then it's, so how do we measure the value we've captured? Um, and this is the challenge with the big crunch is the speed of the decline of a business has implications for a lot of things, and particularly the value of assets such as manufacturing and stuff. And we talked a little bit about Nokia, uh, Nokia having assets in um, non-smartphones assembly in China, lots of debt for lots of manufacturing capability that, you know, those assets and the thing is trying to sell, how do you sell dumb phone manufacturing capability after everybody recognizes that's not where the market's going? So this idea of early exit is really interesting. And here's where I'll come back to the idea of um, rethinking risk, because we actually found an interesting thing that um, a South Korean chip plant manufacturer was actually building a new multi-billion dollar chip plant but it had actually it had already, as part of the building plans and contracts, was selling the plant off to the Chinese after five years to a Chinese buyer. So they had already found the buyer. <laughs> so imagine like buying a car. It's sort of like a lease. It's the same thing. It's sort of leasing. But, um, you know, it's the leasing of everything. It's saying, well, all right, which tranche of ownership are you going to take? And what risks and costs are implied in that? Because the idea is maybe, well, all right, I can pay more for the first five years because the first five years are worth more and maybe worth more to me. And then what's it going to be after? But the whole idea is, well, if that factory is worth less after five years, well, you know, that was the risk the buyer took. And if it's worth more, well, I took that chance. I have to sell the asset, you know go in peace <laughs> and good luck with it and, you know, make more money. But so this idea of being able to tranche out risk and, and think about risk and think about the sources of who buys um, various pieces of, of the risk is, is really new. 
the other thing that's interesting in terms of seeing saturation and planning ahead. So this is this idea of like if you know you're it's going to saturate and you know the assets are going to be worth less. One way, one place it really didn't work out, which we love that we talk about in the book, was uh, Zynga and Farmville. And you have to be pretty old to remember some of these games on an early farm. Yeah. No, man, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> while you're saying this, I'm going to share the the sudden death, the line of sudden death, because this is is quite relevant for what you're talking about uh, when you're talking about Zynga and OMG Pop. So for the customer. What they see is, all right, I was playing Farmville, but now there's this new game, Draw Something, and so I'm just going to you know, seamlessly transition to that. But for the companies that are on the other side, on the, you know, the developers, it feels like sudden death at all these different peaks, but it's completely smooth to the buyer. Well, so what happened in, in Farmville is at least they recognized that, you know, Farmville was going to saturate and Zenga was going to saturate. So Zenga had the idea it would be this company that would identify early popular games and would, would be a major player in the online phone games market. Um, the challenge was it bought Draw Something just at its peak of saturation, <laughs> not at its base. So it was kind of on the run-up, but it didn't really appreciate that, you know, instead of simply, you know, finding a creative way of buying it for a short time or whatever, it went full out and bought OMG Pop, uh, which owned Draw Something. And Draw Something had managed 35 million users in seven weeks. Um, but the problem is the next game, and this is the illustration, I'm glad you put it up, Aiden, this is the perfect thing. It's like, but seven weeks after that, the market was onto something else. Um, and so the cost, but that also highlights, it's a great example of sort of highlighting this idea that, well, for all the money that they made on Farmville, it was all the money that they spent giving billions of dollars to OMG Pop. <laughs> and if OMG Pop said, oops, you know, what are we going to do with these billions now? So the money just kind of keeps flowing down the line um, as you make it lose it, trying to chase um, this line of sudden death. Before you run on to the next rule, rule eight, I thought you, this is really important and also goes to the idea of an ecosystem or even a supply chain, because you say the big crunch can hit even harder for makers of peripheral products and services that add on to the big bang disruptors or of others. Manufacturers of supporting products and services may have less insight into the direction of an ecosystem than those who produce the core products. I thought that was important because if you're a supplier of parts or a part of that ecosystem, you need to know where that industry is going. Yeah, and I, a good example that it sort of sticks in my mind, and particularly because you know Clay Christensen liked to talk about um, hard drives and that. Turns out, what was interesting is that one of the key enablers to the iPod um, was a miniature, a very, very miniature Toshiba. Uh, hard drive, and it was the, the the Apple person who found the Toshiba product, and Toshiba was like, well, I don't know what to do with this now because we don't really need them this small. And it's like, well, wait a minute, I think we have something we can do with a very, very tiny uh, thing. But the idea is that this, uh, you know, Toshiba's a components part, but if you're making things like hard drives for PCs and that, you may miss the move to solid state or you may miss, miss the move to another 
product category. Um, so even if, you know, you're makers of digital uh, photography, digital cameras and that, if some, suppose you make the housings of digital cameras, right? Well, you have to understand where digital photography is going to say phones instead of, you know, standalone cameras to understand, even if you're just making, you know, the pieces to things like a camera. So we saw that again and again and again, that the, the broader supply chain, it's good if you can find ways to repurpose things like camera lenses from cell phones to drones, but also there's a risk if you don't know where your component can be repurposed, which brings us to actually right to, it's a great thing, um, you know, the point of quitting while ahead. One of the things that you have to do to get the big crunch right is not to hang on too long. Blockbuster, you could say, hung on too long. Dish Network was, uh, you know, they sold to DishNet for $322 million, which when you think about what that company was worth, to think that it got sold for $322 million, mostly for the customer <laughs> base and, uh, and an online channel, this idea of recognizing that, you know, assets are really ephemeral. Um, and even like Gorilla Glass, which was a corning product used for a cell phone, um, Apple, you know, recognizing, hey, we've got to repurpose this. You know, we've got this ability now to make it, but we've got the ability to make much more than Apple can ever use and everything else. So how quickly can we get to the repurposing or do we have to rethink even, you know, the ownership of these factories and that? Um, let me give you one more good example, and it's um, really critical to this idea of getting out of an out of your assets early. The best one that we really like and talk a lot about in the book is um, Philips Lighting, which is really profound because Philips got into the light bulb business as early as there was electricity. I mean, as the European ones, as Americans, we don't think of it too much. Um, but to Europeans, and that the recognition that Philips and light bulbs were synonymous since the late 1800s, literally. So he spent 60 years or more uh, up until the 60s, 70s, you know, 70 years plus making incandescent light bulbs. And then all of a sudden you have this, this thread of LEDs coming in. And so then the question is, well, well, what's going to become of me? What's going to become of my assets when this happens? And we're really impressed with Phillips because instead of denying it, instead of fighting it, and again going to bullet time, they actually took the opposite tact of bullet time and embraced LEDs and said, look, you know, incandescent bulbs are horrible. And this is where we get the Heitz's Law which basically says that the energy consumed and the price point of LEDs was going to essentially follow Moore's law as well. So that LEDs have gotten 10x brighter and 10 times cheaper uh, and importantly manageable, which is why you get televisions and stuff um, over time, you know, exponential improvement. And seeing that, you know, so you see all the concepts starting to come together, seeing that Philip said, we can't be on the, you know, trying to salvage this. We, we need to get in front of it. So what they did is they started investing heavily in LEDs, LED bulbs, the Hue products. They got into all these sort of things because the, the, the other problem with an LED bulb is the good and bad of it is it lasts 15 years um, at least. 
And so the idea, yeah, some of us will be old enough to remember changing light bulbs every few months, like the light bulb burns out. You know, our children are are going to have no knowledge of changing light bulbs. Uh, it's weird to think, right? I mean, they might change a light bulb twice in their lifetime. A profound level of change. Um, but the success Philip had in getting ahead of that, moving out of that industry, being able to actually sell in, their incandescent production capability while it was still valuable to others who wanted to create it for markets that were still committed to incandescent bulbs, selling those factories early. All of these steps that Philips did moving into the medical equipment stuff that they had, and that it was only at, towards the end, it was only 30% of their business, but it was enormously profitable. Um, but yet following through, building a commitment and a vision to get out of the business and exit the business. And in fact, the name is still used, I believe. Um, I haven't checked it very recently. Um, so I think, you know, they licensed the name, but um, Phillips, a few, the number of years back, got completely out of the, the, um, the lighting business. And again, you know, 100 years, hey, Got to follow. Got to follow where the future where the future points. There was one point, and I'm just aware of our time to move on to the last three rules on entropy. But there was a really important point here. A, there's the whole emotional element of letting go of that business and the brand and the history, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But also, there was Phillips collaborated with government and NGOs to adopt a sustainability approach, and that also then made the government look like the guys who were forcing us to change our bulbs, not Philips. So there wasn't that kind of customer revolt in a way against Philips as a result. Yeah. And it's the whole thing of, you know, things can work a lot better when you're collaborating in, you know, not fighting the inevitable when you're actually embracing the inevitable um, things like government, you know, government assistance, um, because the other thing is, you know, you don't want to lose the jobs and stuff. So you have to repurpose the employees and this and that. So if you say, you know, look, we're just trying to get ahead of, you know, what could happen, you know, badly later and particularly in national government supports and help and, um, you know, doing something that's green and, and right in that way can gain you a lot of favor, both in customers and, and regulations. So definitely has upsides. Okay, man, well, we've come to the end in, in many ways, also of this episode, but also of the term entropy. So we've come to the end of the Big Bang, <laughs> as we know it. The end of the Big Bang, exactly. <laughs> Three final rules here as well. So this is where you're trying to make some type of profit from the wreckage of what's left. Yeah, and just, you know, to go sort of quickly through that, there's a lot more obviously in the book. I mean, one of the ones we talk about is Escape Your Own Black Hole, which we found really fascinating, which is, again, sort of like entropy, and we're sort of using this cosmos thing, but the idea of a black hole sort of sucking you in and sucking you back. So part of getting to the next S curve, part of the doing, part of surviving means getting out of your own vacuum, the vacuum you create or the emptiness that you create your black hole when you fail or when you're starting to end. And one of the great ones of that was thinking about, you know, well, where does that happen? And you think of things like landline phone service. And we've talked a bit about that, but you know, 
you have this enormous success if you're AT&T or whatever, or the, you know, the baby bells, the big, you know, the U.S., the whole thing of providing copper-based landline phone service. But you think about the fact that, you know, after all these years of cell phone service, it's all still there. And it was only two years ago that the government said that, you know, some of these bell comp- former bell companies didn't have to in the U.S., it's all U.S., side of it, but similar in other places, that they don't have to provide copper to to the home. What do they call POTS? Plain old, plain old telephone service. Only 31% of homes still use uh, a plain old telephone service. But, you know, so two-thirds are gone. Well, the market is gone. But the incumbents still have to spend tons of money supporting that that one-third of customers that left. And so this whole idea of how is it that your customer base may actually hold you back? And you can think of things as, you know, a more recent example, Reed Hastings. Um, some might remember Reed Hastings tried to get rid of the DVD business. How did he do that, right? It was like, well, people went nuts. He, he tried to raise the price on it and... You know, and it's like, you know, well, we'll, we'll quit the service. And it's like, well, yeah, well, that's the hope because it's becoming really expensive to sustain that business. It's really just becoming a distraction to management. And, um, and then realizing, you know, and walking back that kind of mistake. But then, um, you know, and so we see again and again, uh, companies that wind up and it's interesting that AOL, um, for again, you know, America Online uh, still has customers, still has $450 million worth of business or something like that. It's crazy. Ed, the DVD business is something similar. It's a, it's $800 million or it's, So these businesses, but again, the challenge is not just the loss of the revenues, but the lack of the loss of customers. So you have to, you have to have a plan to, to, to get out of your commitments. I mean, another good example I'll give you is cars. Um, you know, closing down the lines that GM had to do in the U.S. when they got rid of things like Pontiac, right? Well, there's a lot of people who own Pontiacs. They want parts. You have to guarantee parts availability. You have to guarantee, you know, uh, service and car dealerships and those all sorts of things. So sometimes these large businesses can be encumbered. Uh, next thing is, you know, become someone else's components. Um, the one we love to use there is the one you'd mentioned earlier is Fujifilm. Um, this idea of how do you become someone else's components and the, the advantage that Fuji had over people say, well, what happened to Fujifilm if Kodak got crushed? Well, Fujifilm has survived and survived rather well because Fujifilm had the advantage that most of what it sold had to be sold to other businesses in order to create the volume to compete with Kodak. So Fuji was always focused on how much can I sell to how many different buyers just to keep up the volume in the businesses I'm in. So Fuji pretty seamlessly made the transition to coatings of big screen TVs. They all have these um, films, you know, for different refractions and different things, but lots of this films and using laminate. So boom, hundreds of millions of televisions, all with a Fuji laminate. And the one that I really like is the idea of repurposing the chemicals for anti-aging. And here's what's really interesting is that collagen is essentially the same thing as gelatin. And gelatin, people who remember old film, right? Gelatin is what 
the cover, the silver well, hydroxide, whatever it is, the silver on the film is covered in gelatin. And the reason that your negatives used to go bad in the old days is because sunlight would break down the collagen. It would break down the, the gelatin of film because film was made of gelatin and that would deteriorate. So film companies had to come up with ways for gelatin not to deteriorate through sunlight. Now, you know, fast forward to anti-aging creams, right? It's like, well, what is your skin made up of? It's made up of collagen. What is collagen? It's essentially gelatin. You know, what happens to your skin when it gets a lot of UV light on it? Well, it breaks down. <laughs> How do you keep it from breaking down? Well, you use these chemicals. Who makes these chemicals? Fuji makes these chemicals. Boom. Now they become a supplier to anti-aging creams. Um, and partnering there. And I just love that story because you can almost not think of a thing further, far afield of like, how do I go from being in the film business to anti-aging creams? But there's your logic. Um, and one that really helped Fuji move on um, from its past. And so this idea of the ability to move on from your past is, is critically important. And that's where the, the beautiful line, I don't know if you know this one, the second mouse gets the cheese is important. So yes, they were second to Kodak, but that actually can work out in your favorite sometimes to be the component manufacturer rather than be the, the main player as well. It's the, the whole thing of the trade-off of flexibility and um, you know advantage so that to gain advantage, you often have to trade off flexibility you know, through the enhanced, increased commitment to the industry or the thing or whatever. But in times of change, that, that can also be a curse. So we're left with one rule, last rule, rule 12, which is move to a new singularity. And you say here, co-opt the tools of the disruptors and their investors and use them to relocate your remaining assets to a healthier ecosystem. Sponsoring hackathons, opening innovation centers for entrepreneurs and excelling at corporate venture capital can often buy you the access and equity you need to catch up for lost time and missed opportunities in the early stages. Maybe you have an example of this move to a new singularity. I guess one of the best examples I would probably use, and I haven't used it before, but I will use it in this case, is Accenture uh, itself, because I do like what the company did um, that when you think about, you know, Accenture has enormous multi-billion dollar businesses now in things like security, um, digital at, um, digital assets and management. It's the largest, uh, the world's largest digital ad agency. All these new businesses, and they're all new venturing, and it was really critically important. And, you know, I, I guess I'm sort of proud of what Accenture did in the sense of um, moving into new businesses that were not, considered traditionally, while they were sort of all digitally based and all kind of computer based, they were not traditional businesses of the company, but seeing that need and also, you know, part of the way that it was able to happen was by having venturing and building a venturing business. And so part of becoming the, the scale of Accenture was building a professional office of the chief strategy officer. So the office of the chief strategy officer was one of the things that uh, was created post going public. And then part of that was the venturing, um, uh, the VNO, VNMA, VNA, venturing and acquisition, this idea of inorganic growth, but also importantly, the organic growth through venturing um, and, and how companies move to that. And so, you know, another good example is AT&T's 
you know, it seems simple, but important moving into um, Silicon Valley with a, you know, a star with its own venturing business to sponsor hackathons and become part of this system. So the idea is that, you know, if you can't beat them, you got to kind of join them um, and getting in <laughs> at least a little bit, having a toe in the water of what what's actually going on. Uh, in all of these places that are actually, you know, recombining innovation for for fun and profit. Beautiful, beautiful, Paul. Great way to finish on a positive as well. And I just want to grab the book from the shelf here. Beautiful hard copy there I have that uh, Paul kindly sent to me, signed copy. But I, I highly, highly recommend, and I don't usually say this so with so emphasized that these books are brilliant. They're so well researched. The stories are great. The the logic is great that Paul goes through with all these books with his co-authors. And I highly recommend this one, part two of our three-part series of the books. That is not not of how many episodes we've recorded. And by the way, Paul and I have gone down so many rabbit holes off off the record button as well. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Once again, author of Big Bang Strategy, Strategy in the Age of Devastating Innovation, Paul Nunes, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Aiden. Pleasure as always.